I feel I have to give a, a, an apology, or I felt as if I have to give an apology, but I can't, and so I'm not going to. But what the apology would be, if I were to apologize, would that this week's sermon is going to be a little bit more theological than you might like. The problem is, when you're preaching through a passage of Scripture, you can't leave out the bits that seem to be a bit more difficult and a bit more challenging, and possibly a little bit more, how could I say, theological or doctrinal. And we've come across such a passage right now as we look at the Word. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking from verse 17. But let's, let's state where we are right now. We've come to the seventh sermon in this series. Remember, it was interrupted by the lockdown. The seventh sermon in this series, on the opening part at least of the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at the fundamental purpose of the sermon, which is to lay down a manifesto for how these Christians are to live in the kingdom. And how living in this kingdom is indeed counter to the way the world lives. Everything we do is different. We looked at the eight Beatitudes, which go into some detail into what the life of Christ should, the life of the Christian should look like, including a sense of spiritual helplessness. We need to understand that we are without him, we are nothing. We're to hunger for righteousness. We're to have roles as peacemakers. And if so, we might face persecution. And then over the last two Sundays, We've looked at how we are to be salt to the earth and light to the world. So visible that we can't be ignored. And we need to tell the truth about the gospel, no matter how it is received. And we need to bring light into the darkness of life's great dilemmas. Now we come to a paragraph in 17 to 20 that brings it to us a conclusion to that first part but also a wonderful introduction to the next part, if you like. Because from here on in, Jesus is going to be talking in very practical terms about some of the ways in which the commandments are viewed. So, for example, he's going to talk about sexual morality. He's going to talk in a new way about the taking of oaths, about revenge, about dealing with poverty, about prayer, about fasting, about anxiety, and many more of these practical day-to-day -day issues. But let's have a look then at the passage before us. It would be really good if you had your Bible with you, but if you don't, that's fine. I will read it to you. Do not think, that verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until earth and heaven disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough passage. Two things it deals with. First of all, it deals with the relationship between Jesus Christ himself and the Old Testament law and prophets. And then it deals with our relationship as individual Christians to the law and the Old Testament. So if we look at part one then, we're looking at how does Jesus relate to the law and the prophets? Now this very short paragraph is a very crucial one. 
It tells us a lot about the relationship in the Old Testament and the New Testament between the law and the gospel. And Jesus kicks it off by making a very, very bold statement. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, because he was being accused of that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. And why does he do this? I think it's because this was exactly what people were wondering about. And some accusing him of, they were accusing him of, of disobeying the law, of changing the law. He seems to the nitpicking Pharisees to be constantly breaking this law. You remember he healed a man's hand, but he did it on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do things like that on the Sabbath. And then he was caught plucking some corn from a, a field along the roadside and grinding it in his hands. And the Pharisees said, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus keeps saying, truly I say unto you, verily, verily I say unto you. And, and, and this, is, this is where he, want, he wants to take them to the real truth here. And they want to know, they, they say, well, if you're saying truly, truly, whose, whose authority are you using? How can you speak like you're speaking? Are you setting yourself up against the law? So Jesus says, no, not at all. I've not come to abolish the law at all. I've come to fulfill these laws. And this question of the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament is still being discussed in theological circles. Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, law and the prophets is just another way of talking about the Old Testament. We often refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. And as we know today, as the Jews know today, and in the days of Christ, this means the, the Old Testament writings that they had at the time. And the word fulfill means literally to fill up, to complete, to bring to completion. And this is what Jesus does for the Old Testament. He fills it up. He doesn't repeal it. He doesn't abolish it. But as Chrysostom, the church father, puts it, he draws it out and then he fills it up. And it's important to notice that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is made up of several different features. So first of all, you have the, the doctrinal teaching, the Torah, the law. It means the revealed instruction. And the Old Testament is full of instructions. The Pharisees encountered well over 200, 300 of these, full of instructions about God and man and, man, and God's relationship with man. Every one of the great biblical doctrines can be found in the Old Testament. Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. And the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. And Jesus then comes to bring the gospel to completion in his person, in his death and resurrection. The gospel which is in seed form in the Old Testament, in full flower, in the New. And secondly, in the Old Testament, you get predictive prophecy. Much of the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Israel's Messiah, both his first coming and his second coming. It does this either in words or by what we call types or shadows or pictures. And again and again in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be this promised Messiah. And almost every time he does it, folk get really, really angry. And they pick up stones to stone him, but he gets away. But in the end, they get him. They go one step further and they kill him with the cruelest of all methods, the Roman crucifixion. And then thirdly, the Old Testament is full of ethical 
precepts. And by this we mean the moral law of God that gives us the Ten Commandments and other such commandments. And even these laws were misunderstood and disobeyed. But Jesus comes along and he obeys the moral precepts of the Old Testament 100% to the letter. And that's the first way in which he fulfills them. He fulfills them by being the only one to ever obey them. But he does much, much more than just obey them. He explains to his followers exactly what it does mean to obey the law, as he does here on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the sermon is all about, how to actually obey the law. He rejects the superficial interpretation of the law given by the scribes and the Pharisees, and he himself provides the correct interpretation. So his purpose is not to change the law, still less to annul the law, but as MacNeil, the commentator, puts it, he fulfills it by revealing the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. It's a little bit like this, if you can think of an acorn. There are several ways, I guess, in which you can destroy or abolish, if you like, an acorn. And one is you can put it on the table and hammer it and break it all up. That's one way you can abolish an acorn. Another way to abolish an acorn is to dig a hole and put it in the ground. But what happens when you do that? Something remarkable then happens. It begins to seed and it begins to open up and it begins to cause eventually the growth of this wonderful, wonderful, most beautiful of trees. And that's in a sense what Jesus does with the law. In a sense, he takes it and he puts it in the ground and then he watches it grow. He, he becomes this fulfillment in a wonderful way that the scribes and the Pharisees could never have pictured. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, there are a myriad of, of ceremonial prescriptions, especially in the book of Leviticus. And those of you who've tried to read through the Bible from cover to cover, you will know what it's like when you get to the book of Leviticus. It's hard going. But we no longer see these ceremonial ideas as binding. That's because they were never meant to be everlasting or binding after the return of the Messiah, who in his person is the fulfillment of much that is shadowed in these ceremonies, such as the different types of sacrifices, the layout of the tabernacle or the temple. These are fulfilled already in Jesus. But what about verse 18? For truly I tell you, until earth and heaven disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. What are we to make of this? The smallest letter it means iota, the Greek word for yod. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is about the size of what we would call a comma today, a tiny little thing. And then the least stroke of the pen, a dot, the karaya, is a tiny little horn-shaped mark that is written above a number of Hebrew letters. Now notice that the reference is only to the law, not to the prophets, in verse 18. He says here that, true, I tell you, um, until, until nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. It's not speaking about the prophets anymore, from the law. But that doesn't necessarily mean we can't apply it to the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus says here, and this is quite remarkable, that not the smallest part will be discarded, not a single letter or even a part of the letter will be done away with until everything is finished. 
And this fulfillment will not be complete until heaven and earth in their current form pass away in the mighty rebirth of the universe. Then time as we know it will cease. And the written words of God's law will no longer be needed. For all things will then be fulfilled. But the law is as enduring as the universe. That's a wonderful thing to know. And I just move my text here just for a moment. Isn't it wonderful to know that there's something that never changes? Something that never changes. God's word never changes. People change. The way people treat us changes. Things that we think should never change keep on changing. The world changes. Ideas change. But the word of God never changes. It's so reliable. It's such a wonderful thought that we can go to God's word knowing it never changes. But the second part of this is, is where it becomes important to us now. The Christian and the law and the prophets. So let me have a look at verse 19 and 20 again. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 9 starts with the word therefore. And as we always say, when there's a word therefore, you need to look what it's there for. So what is it therefore? Well, it introduces what the deduction is that Jesus now presents to his followers concerning the validity of the law and how they are to deal with it. It reveals a vital connection between the law and living in the kingdom. Not a single word or piece of punctuation will depart from the law until it is all fulfilled. Therefore, greatness in the kingdom is going to be measured by conformity to the law. Greatness in the kingdom is going to be measured by conformity to the law. And just, just don't accuse me right away of preaching salvation by works, salvation by obedience. Just stick with me just a minute. So Jesus in verse 19, taking the theme of verses 17 and 18, is now making it very personal. This is where we come into the picture in this paragraph. And he says here, personal obedience itself is not enough. We are told not to in any way give the impression to others that the law has been abolished, not even the tiniest part of it. To relax the law of God in the slightest way, to loosen its hold on our conscience and its authority in our lives is an offense to God, whose law it is. If we disregard even the least of the commandments in obedience or instruction to others, we become the least of the subjects in the kingdom. And this is what verse 19 teaches. Greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to those who are faithful in living and teaching the whole moral law. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says the peerage in Christ's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. The peerage in God's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. There's no doubt that in God's kingdom there is peerage 
at the moment, they, in our current lives, it does appear that there are some people who are more spiritual and more holy than others, but that may all be reversed. One day when the time of fulfillment comes, Christ says the least will be first and the first may be least. The real truth of the matter will come out and they will in heaven amongst believers, redeemed believers, for those who get some rewards, some get more rewards, some get fewer rewards. They will be peerage and it'll be down to obedience. But Jesus goes further still. And here he becomes startlingly blunt. Not only is greatness in the kingdom assessed by a righteousness that confirms to the law, but entry into the kingdom is prohibited. Listen to this. Entry into the kingdom is prohibited without a conformity to the law much better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at it again. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. On the surface, that sounds absolutely in contradiction to everything we teach about faith in Christ being the, and through the grace of God, entering God's kingdom. But stick with me. Surely the scribes and Pharisees then have a much better chance of getting into heaven than we do because of their righteousness that they were famous for. So how on earth are we ever going to enter, earn a place in God's kingdom? This is what Jesus' um, hearers must have been asking, and so do we. Unless I am much, much more righteous than the men of the law in Jesus' time, I can never even become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees were passionate about obeying every law. The, the Pharisees had calculated that the law contained 248 positive commands and 365 prohibitions. And their task in life was try to obey every single one of them. So here's the question again. So how can Christian righteousness ever hope to exceed Pharisaic righteousness? And how can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition for entering the kingdom of heaven? This doesn't teach a doctrine of salvation by good works and so contract, contradict the, the beatitude which says it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. So let's see what it says. This is shocking stuff. And it must have shocked Jesus' original audience even more than it shocks us today. But the answer is not far away. And this is where it begins. You see, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. Christian righteousness, the righteousness we understand today that we have in Christ, far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness, not in degree, but in kind. Let me explain. It's not so much that Christians succeed in keeping more of the commandments. Pharisees may succeed in keeping 230. We concede, we, we, we keep 235. It's not in degree. Christian righteousness, the righteousness as we understand it as Christians today, is greater than the Pharisees' type of righteousness because it is deeper. It is a righteousness of the heart. Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalyst, speaks of depth psychology. 
Jesus speaks of depth morality. The Pharisees were content, you see, with an external, formal kind of obedience, a right conformity to a set of rules. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. God's demands are far, far more radical than this. The righteousness which is pleasing to God is an inward righteousness of mind and heart and motive. The Bible says the Lord looks on the heart. The prophet Jeremiah foresaw this when he prophesied the Lord saying, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And God told Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So here we have two coinciding promises. God will put his law within us and he will give us his spirit. This does not mean that because we have the spirit, we can dispense with the law, as some would say. Paul had no end of trouble writing to certain churches, the Corinthian church and others, who said that, oh, now we've got the spirit, we don't have to worry about the law anymore. He said, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Because what the spirit does in our hearts is precisely to write God's law in our hearts. So spirit and law and righteousness and heart all belong together. So no matter what the Pharisees would have you believe, or the Pharisees would have people believe, this stringent, unthinking, purely outward obedience to the law is no longer valid. It is now this deep obedience, which is a righteousness of the heart, and is only possible for those who have the Holy Spirit in them, for those for whom the Holy Spirit has given the new birth and the indwells. And this is why entry into the kingdom is impossible without this greater righteousness. You cannot enter into the kingdom without greater righteousness than the Pharisees. How does this work? Because the greater righteousness is the Holy Spirit writing God's law in our hearts, and therefore our obedience becomes a heart obedience. It is because such a righteousness is evidence of the new birth. It doesn't cause the new birth. It's important we see that. This righteousness that Jesus is here is talking about is what comes as a result of being born again. It is not... It doesn't cause us to be born again. It is evidence of our being born again. And no one can enter God's kingdom without it. It does lead us to question, well, what about those people who, you know, does everybody who seems to be very, very holy and very, very righteous, are they all going to go to heaven? Well, we don't know for sure. We'd like to think so. But what it also says is that those who call themselves Christian but make no attempt to develop this heart righteousness, no attempt to allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, that they are those who have to go back and question their very Christianity. The reason we can be born again into the kingdom is because Jesus was obedient to the cross. He was obedient to God. He paid the price 
for our disobedience. And when we enter the kingdom through this new birth, the evidence that we have indeed been reborn is that we begin, sometimes painfully slowly, but we begin to live a new, deeper, heartfelt obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You say, how do I know am I am a Christian? How do I know I'm a believer? Jane, the book of John, which our pastor took us through, uh, the first letter of John. How do we know that we are his? Because we keep his commandments. We put aside all of that sin. Not all of it will ever be perfect, but the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and we'll become more and more obedient as the years go by. That's how we know. So we see, for example, the Pharisees evidently changing the law and messing around with it, restricting all sorts of things, um, evidently restricting the biblical pro prohibitions against murder and adultery to just the acts themselves. Jesus says, it's not murder so much that you, you, you need to be worried about. It's the angry thoughts. It's not adultery so much. It's the lustful thinking. He takes it to the heart, takes it right down to the heart. There's other examples. The Pharisees were not content merely to restrict the commands of the law to suit their convenience. They sought to serve their convenience by adding to and extending what the law permitted. So, for example, in the case of divorce, the Pharisees attempted to widen the single ground for divorce. And they made a whole lot of other stipulations around indecency. Christ comes back and he says, no, no, no. There's only one reason for divorce, and that's, that's adultery. Jesus did not contradict the law of Moses. On the contrary, this is what the Pharisees were doing. That's the irony of it. What Jesus did rather was to explain the true meaning of the moral law with all of its uncomfortable implications. He extended the commandments which were restricting and he restricted the permissions which the Pharisees were extending. Calvin said, we see Jesus not as a new legislator, but as the faithful expounder of laws that have already been given. And so, we as believers today are to follow Jesus, not the Pharisees. We have no liberty at all to try to lower the standards of God's law and to make it easier to obey. That's so important. We have no right to extend the law and make it almost impossible to obey. And you can see those, those who preach some kind of sit, situational ethics, who talk about new morality, are doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. They see the law as rigid and authoritarian, just like the Pharisees. So they attempt to relax its authority and to loosen its hold. So what they do is they set law up against love. And they say what we must do is the loving thing, even if we're breaking a particular law, just do the loving thing, no matter what law you might be breaking. And this is especially true in the areas such as an abortion or euthanasia, or attitudes to things such as homosexuality and discipline in church matters. Just do the loving thing. Don't worry about what the law says. Do what is loving. And Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And are there Pharisees still around today? Well, yes, I think they are. 
Pharisees, by definition, are those who proclaim a higher level of personal righteousness than most folk. And they do this by often adding to scripture. They sometimes claim divine authority and thus proclaim a totally different gospel. I'm not going to go into this now. I'm going to look at it in a couple of weeks' time. But your Pharisees, who are the Pharisees in your life who are getting, making you confused? They may be Catholic friends of yours who say, oh, no, no, you, it's not just the Bible, you know, you've got to listen to what the Pope says. You've got to listen to what the words of the church are. There's more than just what Jesus says. It may be legalistic Christian friends of yours who've got a whole lot of list of things that you as a Christian can't do. Oh, no, no, you can't go to movies. You can't do that. You can't dance. You can't chew, as they used to say. Or they may be some hyper, hyper spiritual, hyper charismatic folk who say, well, we've got this higher level of spirituality than you do because we've had this experience or that experience. And you're not as spiritual as we are. They're all Pharisees, all of those people. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 is so relevant in this regard. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. That's what we've just been saying. The only ones to get into the heaven are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? A lot of that going around today. And in your name, did we not drive out demons and perform signs and wonders? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers. So what is my point? No matter how many Pharisees you come across in your life, all you have to do is make sure that your righteousness surpasses them. And we can argue and debate such aberrations in the church till, till we go crazy. Um, but we need to live in a righteousness of life that outshines the lives of any other pretenders. My task as a Christian in my coming across these pharisaical kinds of people and I come across them and you come across them is to live in a righteousness of life that outshines any of their righteousness. Why and how? Because we already have in Christ a far deeper and more complete righteousness than any of these imposters ever know. I'd like to just say one or two things in closing. This righteousness is something we've talked about earlier. In one of the second or third sermons, one of the Beatitudes talks about we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, how do we get this righteousness? Well, the only way to, to gain this righteousness is through God's Spirit, through God's Word. The Word and the Spirit. That's how we get righteousness. And I want to challenge you this morning because it's my task. Whenever Nick puts me in a pulpit, he gives me, as any preacher who stands in any pulpit, is given the task of challenging certain things. And I must challenge you this morning as I challenge myself. How hungry, how thirsty are you for righteousness? How deep are you into God's word through God's spirit? I've met, I've met Christians who are many years into their Christian lives who still say, well, you know, I don't really know my Bible. And I have to bite my tongue very firmly at that point, because someone who says to me, I've been a Christian for 40 years or 50 years, still says, I don't know my Bible. I have to wonder what's happening. I really do. 
especially when you get young Christians of two or three years who are spending so much time in God's word and you can see it. And then there are others, and I also have to bite my tongue a little bit here when they say to me, I'd like to spend more time in my Bible, but I just don't have the time anymore. Just don't have the time. And I wonder about that. And they say, Rob, well, you've got much more time. You're semi-retired now. You've got lots of time on your hands. And they'd be right. They'd be right. You know, if you think about what we are meant to give to God, when it comes down to our money, for example, it's probably a fair suggestion that one-tenth. The biblical tithe is, 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 is fair enough. Although the New Testament idea is that we give everything to God and we get his permission to keep some for ourselves. But still, most of us would agree that in terms of your, your earnings, one-tenth would be the minimum. What about your time? What about the tithing of your time? I don't know know whether you realized or not, but in a single week, you have 168 hours. And one-tenth of that is 16.8 hours. Can I ask you this morning, are you spending 16.8 hours per week in the things of God, his word, his worship, his service? That's an average of 2.4 hours per day. That's only one-tenth. That's the minimum. So when people say, I don't have time, I have to wonder. Sometimes one has to find time by sacrificing. Maybe I have to sacrifice a meal to find time to get into God's word. Maybe I have to sacrifice some time that I would normally spend on a leisure activity to find time for God and God's word. Maybe I have to sacrifice some hours of sleep to find time for God's word but I need to give him at least a tenth of my time every week, surely. And then I want to encourage you that if you do that, and when you find yourself doing that, you discover something very, very precious begins to happen. The deeper you get into God's word, you you begin to get the, the answer to one of the most fundamental questions that we can ask as Christians. The fundamental question is not, who am I? That's what psychologists would want you to answer. The fundamental question for any Christian is, why am I? Why am I even here? And why do I exist? And the answer to that question is because you're precious to God. And you discover that sense of preciousness that you are to God the deeper you get into his word. Until you get into his word, you never figure it out that you are precious to him. Let me close with this illustration. In in the days of the Old Testament, the high priest wore a particularly striking uh, piece of jewelry across his chest. And on this, it was called the ephod. And on this chest piece were 12 different highly precious stones on this this chest piece. And engraved on every one of those 12 stones was one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And he would go into the temple, into the very highest place of God once a year with the names of the 12 tribes. Now, Jesus Christ one of his tasks, and we need to remember this, is our high priest. And I like to think, as he stands before the Father, he carries on his chest a myriad of stones, bright, jeweled stones, with my name, your name, inscribed on them. And he goes into the presence of the Father 
And he says, Father, these are my people. These people are precious to my heart. These people I plead with you for. You're precious to the Lord. And you discover that preciousness. You discover that righteousness when you get deeper and deeper into God's word. And my prayer is that you would begin to, if you haven't already, to find the time, to make the time, to get into God's word and really discover the magic, the mystery, the wonder of what he has for us in this life and in the next. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your word, as hard as it sometimes is. Lord, we thank you for those tough passages that knock us to our knees, thrust us to the ground in, in the agony of understanding and, and that, we, that we can never live the way you want us to live, but we have your righteousness within us. That deep in our hearts you have written your law and you have put your spirit within our hearts that we might live lives pleasing to you until the day you come for us and we are glorified and all the sin is taken away. Lord, my prayer is for each one this morning, listening to this right now or receiving a copy of it later in the day, that each one would understand that if they know Jesus, they have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, and therefore they have entry into the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that each one would search your word, seek your word for the comfort and the, insur the assurance that it brings. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.